If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite your attention to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we're continuing in a series that we've entitled Real Faith Works. And we're going to look together in just a moment at James chapter 1. And we're going to talk today about the matter of temptation. Before we get there, I just want to say a couple of things as your pastor. I don't know that I've ever been more proud of a church family than I was last Sunday. Some of you that are guests walked in and you saw hands still all over the the doors and maybe on the hallways. Last Sunday was the culmination of a ministry fair, and we called on our people to rise up and say, all hands are on deck. I want to say, here I am, Lord, send me, use me. And uh, hundreds of our people volunteered in various areas. And I'm so thrilled. I I just tell you, it warmed my heart to work back through the cards and look at them and see your willingness to say, I'll use my gifts. I'll use uh, my experiences. I'll use uh, my obedience just to say, Lord, I want to be used of you. So thank you, church family. And I also want to say this, a close second to last Sunday and the, the excitement I felt for my church was this morning. Hasn't our worship this morning just been incredible? Amen. Amen. We started out, we, we sang about victory in Jesus. We talked about our living hope that we've been born into, a declaration of the blood, and then Michelle just reminding us that in God's eyes, through the shed blood of Christ, we become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. Dr. Dykes, thank you so much for all of your leadership. I, I am so grateful for Wes Dykes and for all of the things that he's brought to the table in terms of our worship experience. Uh, amen. That, that's worthy. Well worth it. His name is Marcus Antonius. You know him better probably as Mark Anthony. He lived from somewhere around 83 B.C. to around 30 B.C. He was a cunning general. He he was an incredible elder statesman, if you will. He was a supporter of Julius Caesar. He eventually became one of three rulers who ruled the entire Roman Empire. Kind of interesting as I read some things about him, he was known, uh, as I've said, a cunning general and a brilliant thinker, but even more than that, he was known as a skilled orator. In fact, his nickname was Silver Tongue. They said that he could talk his way into or out of most any situations, but he could dazzle a crowd and hold them in his hand with his power of communication. With all that Mark Anthony had going for him, cunning general and, and military prowess, brilliant intellect, all of the different things that he had going for him with oratory skills, it is said of Mark Anthony that he was weak morally. In fact, one of his mentors said this famous line about him, O Marcus, O colossal child, able to conquer the whole world, but unable to resist temptation. You know, that may describe you today. It describes a lot of Christians that I know. I know a lot of people who are highly educated. I have a lot of friends and and people that I know, acquaintances that I know that are believers that ooze spiritual gifts. They have a phenomenal knowledge of the Word of God. And yet they find themselves stumbling over and over again, headlong into sin because of temptation. It's been said that temptation has no respect for any title. Temptation plays no favorites and it has many faces, lying and cheating and stealing and lusting. 
greed and envy and hatred, and the list goes on and on. Last week, we introduced ourselves to the book of James, and in this incredibly practical book, in this remarkable letter, we looked at a common man who wrote with common language to common people practical advice about how to live out their faith. And last week, we looked from the outside at how trials will come. And James told us how we should look at the trials of our lives. He said that we uh, should look at them as opportunity for joy. And we studied that last week. If you've not had an opportunity to hear that message, I'd encourage you to go on our website and, and to take a listen because I think it really sets the tone for where we're going today and even next week as we consider some other uh, thoughts from James. Last week he, he was looking at trials from the outside. This week he's looking at more of an inside study. He's looking at how do we deal with temptations from the inside, those things that would allure or entice us to sin. And as we look at this together, I think that we'll see some, some unique things about this from our text that maybe will help you in this regard to temptation. I, I know many a person who has spent years battling the same temptation. It seems like as far along as they think they might should be, they go back and they say the same things are continuing to trip me up. The same things tend to lead me in the wrong direction. It's interesting, the word temptation that we're going to read today and the word trial that we read last week in verse 2 is the exact same word. Context gives us the indication or the meaning. But one thing is sure, and I want you to hear this. If the believer is not properly prepared for a trial or for a temptation, you can be victimized by either. And I want you to see this with me. What James is going to give for us today are four realizations about temptation. Four realizations that will help us understand how we are to approach them. And I think as we look at this together, we'll see that we've got maybe some misperception, misunderstanding about temptation. I mean, we read, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we consider temptation somehow as the enemy. We say temptation is bad. Temptation is the thing. I've got to worry about it. No, you need to be focused on the sin that temptation leads to. Temptation is not the enemy. Temptation is an opportunity for you to give God glory just as is the trials that we read about last week. So let's look together at our text. James chapter 1 beginning in verse 13 and we're going to learn these four realizations together. And remember when you are being tempted do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to what? Help me out, church. To death. Don't be misled, my brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true word. And we, out of all creation, became His prized possession. Let's pray together and then let's together maybe unpack some things from this text. Let's begin to look at some things from this text that will help us in these realizations to understand how better to face the temptations of life. May we pray. Father, I pray that you would add understanding to the reading and the hearing of your word. 
I pray that you would speak to us today in such clarity that we would understand the the tactics of the enemy and we would understand Lord the the things that are there to trip us up and to cause us to sin and to lead us away from you and oh God may we together as a people cling to you mightily and we would understand better the the goodness of God today that would lead us to a better understanding of the lies and the deception of temptation I pray it would be so in Jesus name and all of God's people together said Amen. The first of these four that I want to share with you is this. Expect temptations. Expect them. Temptations are inevitable. In fact, this comes directly from the text. The text says, when you are tempted, not if you are tempted. It's interesting, we read last week, it says when you face trials, not if you face them. If you remember, I said, the writer of James is not saying here, James is not saying to us, oh, by the way, if you happen to face a trial, be ready for it. No, he says they're coming. Can I just tell you, church family, you need to expect temptation to come. One of the dangerous things that happens in the Christian life is we are lulled to sleep and the enemy comes to us not with a pitchfork and a bright red suit with a tail. He comes to us in alluring forms and he catches us at weak moments. In fact, this is not part of your notes, but I've discovered that I am most susceptible. You may want to jot this down. Write the word halt. H-A-L-T. Halt. You are most susceptible to sin when you are hungry You are angry, you are lonely, or you are tired. You think about that. That'll preach. I mean, that's one of those that you can hang on to. When we find ourselves hungering for something, when we're angry, when we're lonely, or we're tired, we are most susceptible to temptation. And you need to be aware of that. Be aware that temptation will come. Expect it. It says, when you are tempted. You need to realize this. Your life is all about response to God. And J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said these words. Once you become aware that the main business in your life and that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Let me say that again. Once you become aware that the main business of your life and the reason that you are here is to know God, Most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. When you're struggling with a trial from the outside or a temptation from the inside, recognize that your heart disposition, your attitude of readiness toward those things is critical. And when you begin to understand that all of life is about knowing God, that when I am properly aligned to God, then all of those things begin to fit into their proper place, including the problems of life. A pastor and author named James White wrote a book called The Fight. And in that book, he wrote these words. You will be tempted early, often, and throughout life. The kinds of temptations may change, but you will be tempted. Listen to these words. For little children, it's candies. It's sensuality for the young. Riches for the middle-aged. And power for the aging. The evil one can wring these changes greater skill than any advertising agency. He knows the Achilles heel of every single person. You will be tempted continuously and ferociously. Jesus himself was tempted at all points as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, temptation does not need to dismay you. It was your Savior's lot. It will be yours. As long as you live, you will be tempted. Temptation is a part of being alive. 
And think about this. It's a commonplace thing that runs all throughout Scripture. We see temptation and we see men and women who run from God and run toward the tempter. They are allured and drawn, uh, drawn to it. Think about it. Noah and his drunkenness. Moses and his arrogance and frustration as he struck the rock. Jacob, this grand schemer in all of his ways. Joseph's brothers who would with great jealousy cast him into a pit, desire that he were even dead. Jacob, as we mentioned, this great scheming one, and all throughout his generations we see others behind him. We see Elijah the prophet in his murmuring, David in his murder and adultery, Jonah in his rebellious running, Peter in his denial, and John Mark's uh, defection as he walked away. It's all around us. Now, I'm trying to just paint a picture for you because I think sometimes we really lose sight of the simplicity of the Christian life when it comes to this matter of obedience. The Christian life is not um, complex. It's not easy. It is very, very hard, but it's not complex. We are to obey God, to say yes to God, to be alive to God and dead to sin. And yet there is something inside of us, our flesh, that is magnetically drawn. And we know that we face three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world is drawing us toward sin. And our flesh is leaning toward sin. And the devil is pushing us Toward sin, And as all of that happens, young people, hear me. We're going to hopefully today give you some things. All of our students, I want to speak to you, whether you're in uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, or college. I want to speak to you about the very real draw of temptation. And I hope that these realizations will speak to every person. But I pray that they would speak especially into your circumstance and situation. Number one, you need to expect temptation. They're all around us. They are coming. To properly understand this uh, opportunity for temptation, the key is not to learn to be temp- not to be tempted. You know, sometimes that's what we, we think. I, I just need to stay away from uh, being tempted. The Bible says when you are tempted. You know, we've tried that in our world. It was called the monastic movement. Well, if I can just move to a mountain in a quiet place, and not be around anybody else, then I won't be tempted and I won't sin. And I can live my life away from this world. The problem is, if I pack up and I get away from this world, I take me with me. Amen? Anybody else? And I'm part of the problem. You see, the Bible tells us that that temptation comes from our own desires. And we're going to look at that today very carefully and see how we are drawn from our own sense of lusting and our own sense of desire. And so not being tempted is not the cure or the key. What is the cure or the key is to be become rightly related to temptation. That means understanding every temptation is an opportunity to say yes to God. That may sound like a strange statement. Some of you would say, well, I thought temptation was an opportunity to say no to sin. Well, it is, but I think the wiser perspective is I have an opportunity to say yes to the God of the universe that loves me, who sees me not as a mistake, but sees me 
fearfully and wonderfully made. And he sees me as the pinnacle of his creation, very good. And when we begin to say yes to God, we, we use it in the right way. You see, the word temptation has come to mean something bad to us these days. Oswald Chambers said, we tend to use the word in the wrong way. Temptation itself is not sin. It's something that we're bound to face simply because we're human. But listen to the words of Chambers in my utmost for his highest. God does not save us from temptations. He sustains us in the middle of them. That's a good word. God does not save us from temptation. He sustains us in the middle of them. And Scripture backs that up. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, we see how the Bible says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you can bear. You know, sometimes we take that to uh, apply to suffering. That's not what Scripture says. It says God's not going to put on you some temptation or area of temptation or or opportunity of uh, temptation that you cannot escape from. The Bible says He'll provide a way of escape. It would be cruel for God to judge you for something that you are tempted by and drawn to that you had absolutely no power over. But God has given to us a way of escape. And so it's important for you to see that He wants us to move out of those temptations. Realize, number one, it's inevitable. Expect it. Number two, own them. Own your temptations. You need to hear this. Temptation is my responsibility. The text says, do not say God is tempting me. The, the language of the writer here, James, the Greek language would, would almost rise to this level. Don't even remotely think that God has anything to do with your temptation. And you know, the reality is for us that we're the worst at this. I, I think we as Americans have, have created almost a badge of honor to, to pass blame. Mark, excuse me, Will Rogers, uh, that... that um, writer and theologian, if you will, said there have been two great movements in the United States, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. The buck speeds up here with most of us. And again, it's not new. It's not just from an American standpoint. If you went all the way back to our first founding parents, you would see them passing the buck. What did Eve say? Well, the serpent deceived me. And Adam was worse than that. What did Adam say? It was that woman you gave me, right? And he blamed not just the woman, but God. God, you did this. God, it's as if you could have stopped all of the circumstances that led me to this temptation and sin. And God, it's your fault. And James says, don't blame God. Own it. You need to realize that they come from your own lust. Look back with me, if you will, for just a moment at the text. He says, um, dear brothers and sisters, let me move to, let me find it. 13, and remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God never tempted, uh, he is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. You see, there's two words that are kind of interesting. The, The word entice is the word for a snare, like catching a rabbit. It's a hunting word, and he's captured and he's taken away. The the word lure is a fishing term, and you get just the right lure thrown out there in just the right conditions, and it appeals to the desire, the appetite of that fish, and when he finally bites down on it, he realizes he's, he's, he's hooked. And the same thing's true for us. It is our own desire. Let me help you understand, maybe with some clarity on, on this matter of your own desires. Do you realize that almost every sin is an illegitimate expression of a legitimate desire? 
Have you ever thought about that? God gives us desires, does he not? Every single one of us at one point or another in our life face the desire of hunger. Some of you are there right now, right? Anybody? I probably ought not talk about it for very long. God does not forbid hunger. He does not forbid eating. Eating is not sinful. But the Bible does uh, prohibit gluttony, right? Sleep is a natural desire. I'm not going to go there on that question with some of you right now because I can see every one of you. Some of you are needing some sleep. So you're facing that desire. Sleep is a natural thing. God desires for us to have rest. But what does the Bible prohibit? It prohibits laziness. You see, God gives legitimate desires and he gives legitimate expressions for those desires. I've said this often with our kids and with students. If you think about some of the, the, the parameters that God places on legitimate things, God has given a rightful place for a relationship between a man and a woman. It's called marriage. And and I can say it as simply as this. Fire is a wonderful thing in the fireplace, but it's terrible in the curtains. Would you agree? Yeah. I'm good with a fire in the fireplace, but fire outside the fireplace is not good. And for you and for me, when we understand that God has given legitimate desires and then he's given parameters that protect those legitimate desires, temptation is a draw for us to express illegitimately a legitimate desire that God has given to us. Not every sin, but most of them. And and I want you to see this. Temptation that leads to sin is when you and I decide, I'm going to solve this desire in an unholy way. Temptation's not the enemy. Temptation's not the problem. It doesn't work for us to be monastic and be away from the world. In fact, Jesus called us to be in the world, but not of it. And so we're not called to live separate lives and and removed from this world. We're called to engage this world. So how do we deal with it? I want to get to the heart of the matter with these last two. So you need to, number one, have this understanding very, very clearly that you expect them. Temptation's coming. And then you own them. I'm not going to pass the buck. I'm going to say, I've got responsibility here. Number three, understand temptations. Temptation is a progressive process. Look back at the text, verses 15 and 16. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So if desires give birth to sinful actions, and sin grows and it leads to death, then what I would say is temptation really is the pathway toward death. And I want to encourage you today, don't start the process. I've given to you a picture of the process. It starts with enticement, and then it moves from enticement to entanglement or entrapment, and from entrapment to sin, and from sin to consequence. It's been said that most people don't live moral lives today and start affairs tomorrow. Hear that. Most people don't live moral lives today and have affairs tomorrow. No, it starts in the battlefield of the mind. There's enticement. And the problem is that we can't see it out there. It happens in the heart. It happens in the mind. And some of you are dangerously close to the line, and you're close to toppling over the line, and nobody around you really knows that you're close to the line. You just continue to creep closer and closer to the edge. I made some people nervous, didn't I? You creep closer to the edge, and nobody can see it. Everything's fine. Life is good, 
but it's a path. And the Bible says this. You need to understand that temptation is a progressive path. It starts with a thought, and that thought gives birth uh, over and over again. We see this in Scripture, but we see it in our own lives. I, I want to take you to an Old Testament passage of Scripture. If you'll go there with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, very quickly. And we're going to use this as an illustration. It's a very familiar story, one perhaps we're too familiar with. It's David and Bathsheba. And as we look at this together, as we consider this together, I think you'll see some unique things about this process that happened. There was a musical group, as you're turning to 2 Samuel 11, there's a musical group, Casting Crowns, that wrote a, a song a few years ago called Slow Fade. Listen to these words. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go. For the little feet behind you that are sure to follow, when you give yourself away, it says, it's a slow fade. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. When flattering leads to compromises, the end is always near. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. And a price will be paid when those choices are made. Church family, what I want to do is protect you. And I want to protect you by helping you to see temptation is going to come. Stand up and own it. Don't blame God. Don't blame somebody else. Uh, begin to deal with it in your own heart. But come to this place where you understand it. Now, as we look at David very quickly, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. All right? Help me out. What's the problem here? Where should David have been? He should have been with the army out at war. It says in the springtime when they normally go. So now we see wrong place, wrong time. There's something about this that speaks of premeditation to me. As we go forward, we move on and we see David uh, getting out of bed and walking out onto the roof of his palace. And he looks over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty who was bathing, and he sent someone to find out who she was. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And then David sent his messengers to get her. I, I think it's an unfortunate choice of word, not that I'm attacking at all scripture, but, but it's a polite word to say sent messengers. This almost looks like uh, a mobster sending thugs. These are his henchmen. They said, go get her and bring her to me. And it says when she came to him, he lay with her. Then says she lay with him. He's the king. He can do what he wants. He saw. He looked. He lusted. And then he went after. And he drew her in. Well, the problem is we know in the story that she becomes pregnant. And she comes back. He, he didn't want consequence. He wanted his life, his choice without consequence. L let me give you a statement. And young people, this will be worth the price of admission. Parents or grandparents, you need to hear this. You can pick your choices. Or you can pick your consequences, but you can't pick both. Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, if I make certain choices, they'll lead to consequences. If I make a choice, a consequence will come. You say, well, how can you pick your consequence? I can decide today what kind of person that I want to be. I can decide today, this is my consequence. I, I want to live a certain life. And when I do that, I have already made all of the choices. You see, I can't pick the choices. 
Mark Bailey, who is the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, had boys, and he was telling his boys, boys, I want you to make up your mind now. What kind of woman do you want to marry? And they said, we want to marry godly women. I, I want to marry a, a woman who's never been with someone sexually. I want to marry someone who saved herself and who's pure and has a heart for missions and has a, a desire to love the Lord. And he said, then you've already made your choices. You've picked your consequence, so you better be the kind of man that can marry that kind of a woman. You can pick your choices or you can pick your consequences, but you can't pick both. Let me try to illustrate it differently. If you decided that the consequence was you were going to be a marathoner, you're going to run a marathon, well, there you go. You've already made some choices that lead up to it. I mean, most of the time, you're not going to be a marathoner successfully and say, here's the deal. I'm just going to show up that day and see how it works out. That's probably not going to work for you, is it? You can choose your choices, you can choose your consequences, but typically you're never going to be able to choose both. And young people, make some choices now for the consequences. Choose those things. Choose the kind of person you want to be. Choose the kind of people you're going to date. Choose the kind of people you want to marry. All of you as adults, choose the kind of person that you want to be, the kind of reputation that you want to have. And when you do that, your choices will be made for you. David had the consequence in mind that he was going to get what he wanted, but he couldn't choose the choices and the consequence. You see, when he made choices that he made, consequences followed. And by the way, how did the rest of this work out for him? How, how did uh, things work out for David? Well, the baby died. How did his family life work out after this? Was everything happy and go lucky and wonderful relationally? There was strife and turmoil and pain and rebellion with his son. And we see great grief in the heart of David and even in the heart of the nation because the king was in such a fix. You can choose your choices. You can choose your consequences. You can't pick both. Interesting to me, as we go on, I, I don't have time to, to spend in all of David's story, but we know the story. David sends for Uriah, her husband, and says, hey, why don't you go home? And the idea is he's going to cover up what he's done, and it's a slap in the face. Uriah sleeps outside the door. He's a man of integrity. And he says, why didn't you go home? Why didn't you clean up? Why didn't you go spend time with your wife? And he said, in essence, the Ark of the Covenant and the men of Israel are living in shelters. They're living in tents. I, far be it from me. I mean, they're at war. Far be it from me to enjoy the pleasures of home. That had to be like a dagger in the heart of David. And then David tries to get him drunk and send him back. And he can work better in that way. And he did everything he could. And then we see a tragic picture as David puts a, a letter of death notice. I want you to put your eye on the front lines. And then when the battle gets intense, I want you to back up and he'll be killed. And how does he send that letter back to the general? Do you remember? By Uriah's own hand. He handed him his own death notice and sent him away. Can you imagine the, the multiplicity of sin in David's heart and life? I, I heard it said one time this way, that when we give in to temptation and we don't repent, we become sin sick. That means that we just become uh, consumed with covering up and lies and deception. And when you understand that sin will continually pull you farther and farther away from God and that it leads to death, you'll begin to understand, I need to pick better consequences. Well, as we move forward and thinking about this notion of our sinfulness, it's important for us to do one final thing. Uh, it's for us to refocus 
during temptation. Refocus. There's a phrase in our text that almost seems out of sorts. It seems out of place. And I want us to look at it together. It's kind of an interesting thing in verse 17. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true word. And we, out of all creation, became His prized possession. What James is telling us is to acknowledge the goodness of God in the middle of temptation. Recognize that God has blessed you. You think about this. If we go back to the deception of Adam and Eve, what Adam and Eve faced was deception. The evil one brought them to a place of doubting God. He said, don't look at the provision of God. I've asked you this question before. What did God give Adam and Eve in the garden? Anybody? Everything they needed. He provided everything for them. He gave one prohibition. This tree is mine. Don't eat of its fruit. And what did Satan do? Satan pointed to the one prohibition. He said, God's keeping things from you. He's holding things from you. And some of you walked into this place today and you are continually living on a religious treadmill. If I'll try harder, God will love me more. God loves you with a perfect love as you are. His desire is that he would not leave you where you are, but he would conform you into the image of his son. And he has given you every good and perfect gift. Anything good in your life comes from God. God gives goodness. And here we see James saying, in the middle of a temptation, focus on God, not on what it is that you think you're missing. You see, again, there's a process here. And I put it down in your notes. It's three steps. It starts with desire. That's emotional. And then it moves from desire to deception. That's intellectual. That's where Satan gets involved. And then it moves to your will, a decision. Your mind, your heart, and your will are all engaged in temptation. You need to expect them to come. You need to own them when they come. You need to understand them, but refocus on God. Listen, today, if we would just begin to say, everything that Satan is offering me is absolutely false. It's like a movie scene that's propped up from the back. It may look good as a facade from the front, but it's empty on the inside. The people in the Old Testament turned away from God who would give to them living waters. And the, the Bible says they, they would drink from broken cisterns. <laughs> Stagnant pond scum. You, you would... Swipe the scum away and sip from that as if it were something to be desired. All the while God has given artesian, life-giving water. Refocus. One more thing that I found interesting in this text and in our study. If you went back from last week. If you overcome the trials of life, the Bible said last week, you'll receive the crown of life. And here today we see if you fail or lose the battle of temptation, you get the way of death. So James is laying out for us choices. Choices. How do you respond in the middle of temptation? Don't be deceived, it says in verse 16. My dear brothers and sisters, don't be misled. Focus on God. Why? Because He is good. And His goodness will help you understand the deception of temptation. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, Jesus said, 
how much more will God know how to give good gifts? I mean, think about that. I was riveted by that thought this week. God has been good to me. We sang it last week, and I asked Brother West at the prayer service if we could close out our time tonight singing that song, God is so good. God's been good to me. And when I think about the goodness of God, when I'm faced with temptation to something that I know will steal, kill, or destroy, I know will disrupt my life in some way, I know will pull me farther away from life and move me toward that path of death, I just want to focus in and say, God, you're good. When I'm tempted to lie, know my integrity is worth more than that, and so is my Savior. When I'm tempted to cheat on something, know there's no reason or, or ever a, a place for that in my life. When I'm tempted to take something that is my, not mine, isn't it interesting? When the Bible talks about sexual sin, it says that you're encroaching on holy ground. You're, you're stepping into a place where you are not supposed to step. You're taking something that's not yours. Whatever the temptation you need to make sure that you don't put yourself in that place. That's owning it. It doesn't mean that temptation's not going to come if you are tempted in one way and you stop. You know, if, if you can't stop eating potato chips, my recommendation is don't start by eating the first one. Well, that's not the first step. Don't buy them. Don't put them in your house. Run. One of the best tools for us is to flee. Flee. But we don't just run from something, we run to something. And the Bible says here, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Run to Him. Run to Jesus. And when Satan knocks on the door of your life, let Jesus answer the door. Living in simple obedience. How do we face trials from the outside? We begin to recognize the greater purpose that God has. How do we face temptation from the inside? We understand them as something that will draw us away in deception. And don't take the bait. Don't bite the hook. Realize God has given you things. Let, let me illustrate in one final way. Can I just tell you, and I, I sincerely mean this. I'm not just being flattering. God has blessed me with a wife. I mean that. I'm so thankful for my wife. God has given a good thing to me. And a wife. The Bible says, when a man finds a, a, a wife, he finds a good thing. She is my good thing. She's my prime rib, okay, if we use Adam language. You know what it means that God has given me a wife? It means no girlfriends. Amen? Yes, she said amen. No girlfriends. Why? God has given me what I need. I don't need to try to satisfy a, a legitimate desire that God's placed in my heart with an illegitimate expression. And the consequences come when people try to satisfy desires in unholy ways. 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've, I've met a lot of men who were married who had girlfriends. I've met women who were married who had boyfriends. I've met people, and, and some of you are saying, well, I've never done that. Yeah, but every one of you have been tempted, and you've taken the bait. And it doesn't matter where you are. You begin to fill in the blank, and here's the point of that illustration. When you are tempted, look at what God has given you. And say, Satan, I don't need that garbage. I've got the good stuff. That, that verse has never for me come more alive than it did this week. 
God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And when I begin to think about that, I've never really put it in context with temptation. Oh, I've read it there, but God just drove that home in my heart. God has given me so much. God, you're so good. Why would I want anything else? Amen. Now, some of you have been stumbling along life and staggering through life and trying to find satisfaction for legitimate desires in your heart, and nothing has satisfied them. And here's why. Because even a Snickers bar that satisfies only satisfies for a little while. It doesn't meet the need of your heart. Jesus Christ came to this earth to meet the deepest need of our life. And for you today, if you're running on a religious treadmill or you're just running away from God or you're just running, or maybe you're tired of running and you've sat down on the side of the trail and said, I'm done. We're seeing an epidemic of that in our society these days. Wherever you find yourself, God is here. And His desire is that you would be saved. His desire is that you would trust Him. His desire is that you would turn your life over to Him and experience the life-giving, life-satisfying relationship that He created you and intended for you to experience. So today, our appeal is this. If you're battling some ongoing temptation and you've gotten to the place where you have given in to it, I want you to repent. I want you to turn from it, run from it. If you are today battling a temptation, and even in a a time like this, a service like this, your mind has been on that thing, I, I pray that you would see with refocused eyes the goodness of God. And today, if you need to be saved, we are going to invite you. As we stand in just a moment and as we sing, we're going to invite you to stand up and walk out from wherever you are and find one of our prayer partners. They'll be here at the front. They can share with you from God's Word what it takes to have a relationship with God. Let's pray together, and then our musicians are on their way coming. We're going to sing together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would have your way in this place and that people in this place would do business with you today. And I pray that for your glory in Jesus' name.